I just got back yesterday from a Kingdom City leaders, I guess we're calling it now the, the Kingdom City Council, Kingdom City Council retreat. This is, um, it's not the highest, but lowest. So we really have this philosophy of the council and Kingdom City serving each of the churches in the Kingdom City community. And uh, we had a good time of, of um, working together, planning. Um, the Swensons were there. Um, and, uh, and we're going to party there. The, the men are going to party there in a couple of weeks. So do let Paul know. Paul was really holding back when he's talking about manly things. There were a couple of other things that we were talking about. And he said, I probably can't mention that from the, from the front. But that's your idea, Pastor. Um, but I think we're going to have a good time. Um, and it's just going to be um, good, good fellowship, um, good time together, um, I think. Uh, and that's all I can say about that. But do, do consider, if you can make the first weekend of March, do let Paul or Andrew or myself know. Um, we want to make this happen and get together. So we're starting, or we just started last Sunday, this series called um, Oikonomica, which translates economics. And this is coming out of some of the new things that I've been learning about economics. And I think it's, I, the, the responses I've been getting have been really, really positive because this touches home. This gets beyond Sunday and addresses the Monday to Friday of reality and life for many of you. And we're not just talking about money in the sense that Woven um, needs to preach a motivational sermon so that we can get more money into the church. It's taking a different angle where we're talking about commerce, we're talking about trade, we're talking about wealth, the distribution of wealth, how the poor are served. Really, we're talking about really deep philosophical things that will even change us as we strive towards our third mission priority of holistic outreach. And we've had some talk going on. I've done a lot of thinking about what Woven is really purposed about. In my nine years here in Houston, I've thought that my ministry is to a certain segment or a certain population of the city. I'm starting to have a paradigm shift, just internally, that it's not what I thought, and that maybe it, it, it is more towards the poor and more towards different parts of the neighborhood. And so on that note, um, Ryan, if you could pull up those three guiding principles for this series, um, that uh, I shared at the end of, la of yesterday's, I'm sorry, last Sunday's talk. The foundational assumptions for this series. How do we view money? What is our perspective on economics? I see people taking pictures. Please take pictures of, of, these, of these three principles because I think this is really laying the foundation for what we are um, not just believing about economics, but I think it's going to affect how we conduct ourselves as a church as well. The first foundational principle is, I think we can all agree, there's no way to avoid this, that in the economics of God's kingdom, the poor come first. It seems quite clear to me when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, it really comes down to how we treat the weakest and the neediest amongst us that determines um, our moral formation. In fact, there's this teaching called the preferential option for the poor. The preferencing of the poor. This is an actual teaching that says, how can you take the pulse of a society? 
Like I was trying to do this last Sunday. And it's like I can't sense my pulse. Maybe I need a doctor to come here. The thing is, maybe we don't have a very strong pulse. Maybe we're anemic. Maybe our heart is not beating strong. Because in the end of the day, the moral pulse of a nation is how we treat the weakest and the poorest amongst us. This is what you call the preferential option for the poor. Therefore, in God's economics, the poor come first. So therefore, we should all in woven pool all of our possessions and our money and redistribute it amongst the poor. Is that the way we want to do this? The second principle, the foundational assumption, is the best way to serve the poor is to create more wealth. Hmm. This is interesting. This is going a different angle than we thought. Historically, throughout times, we thought of wealth as a small individual pizza pie. I'm going to talk a lot about pizza today. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday. It is Super Bowl Sunday, right? So, you know, it's my individual personal pizza. And this always happens. I call home. I say, Ashley, Austin, and Zoe, do you want something? I'm going to pick up something on the way home. They say, no, we're fine. And I bring home my individual personal pizza, and they say, that looks good. And the next thing you know, I have to give away my pizza. And if I give away 50% of what I want to the poor, that's less for me. So it's a zero-sum game. The less I get, the more their greedy little mouths eat, or vice versa. <laughs> but the thing is, what we've discovered in the last several hundred years of modern economics is it doesn't work that way. It's not a zero-sum game. If you have more pizza, that's less for somebody else. Tough. Actually, the way the pie works is it's a growing pie. And the creation of a pie that grows has an effect of, of uh, not distributing the wealth, but creating wealth for more people and making wealth more accessible for more people. You get that? Making, making wealth more accessible for more people. Let me give you a visual illustration. We're going to have some fun here. We are having communion today. It's Communion Sunday, the first Sunday of every month for us at Woven. And um, I wish I was Jewish. Sometimes I don't say that pejoratively because the practices and the observance that they practice, I need. Um, particularly, particularly around the Sabbath. Um, they observe Sabbath from sundown, listen, sundown, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And that's actually what I do right now. If I can have a Sabbath, I do it from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday or something like that. And they do that because they believe the day doesn't end with morning, with light, but they believe the day, end, the day begins in darkness. So the beginning of the day starts in dark because in the beginning, in Genesis, there wasn't the sun or light. There was darkness. So they believe the day begins with darkness. It's just very interesting. But the thing is, the Jews, everything is about a feast. Everything is about a ceremony. Everything is about stepping on the champagne glass. Everything is symbolic and everything is beautiful. I could use that in my life. And so I always tell my wife, you know, it's Friday evening. Let's have a good meal. And she prepares this thing, and, and my son knows this, and we, we hold hands, and we pray, and, and we start our Sabbath Friday evening just thanking God, saying this is what we're thankful for. But the Jews go even a step further. Not, at the, not just at the beginning of Sabbath, but at the close of Sabbath, they have a special ceremony that involves the pouring of wine. Get that. So you start your Sabbath with wine, you end it with wine. Hey, well, this is not wine, this is juice, but uh, they end it with wine and they pour it, 
and they uh, recall God's goodness on the Sabbath day, but they're about to go back to work because work starts, uh, work starts in sun, uh, what did I say? Sundown, and so it's dark, and so what they do is they pour the wine, and as they thank God and they get ready for the work week, they pour, they hold hands, they have a, a brief, they recite a brief prayer as they pour the wine, and as they pour the wine, they begin to pray. They pray together as a community. And whoa, oh my gosh. Ooh, no, actually, that was on purpose. They pour to overflowing. This is called the service of Havdalah. They pour the wine to overflowing. Why? Because I'm about to go to work this week. May God fill my cup for what I need, but give enough that overflows so that the poor can have it as well. Do you see that beautiful image? So every Saturday night, get your glass of wine and make a mess. Spill it all over the place as an illustration that may God give enough for me, but may he also give enough so that the pie is growing. Because the second foundational principle is the best way to serve the poor is to create more wealth. Well, great. That gives me full license to go all out and to monopolize and to... Go crazy. Actually, no, it doesn't. Because the third foundation for this entire economics series, you know, and I'm testing this, and I'm, I'm grateful that, that people have come up and said, that sounds like, that sounds right. The third principle is, therefore, the pursuit of wealth, it's appropriate and reasonable. Now, mind you, Jesus is very, very harsh on rich people. And if we consider that we are all the 1% of the world, this is hard news for us, but it's also discipleship. Therefore, the pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. The pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if our, my primary motivation is to serve the poor. You see, there's a fundamental perspectival shift here that says I'm not just doing this for me. Everything that I do, may it supply my own needs, yes, but may it also serve the poor. So I do believe in creating wealth. I do believe in uh, the extension of capital, especially to those that need it the most. Not just capital so that the tycoons can get more but capital for those who really need it, who really could use the loan. And so these are the foundational assumptions for this economic series. And I think what it does is twofold. Number one, it's going to influence how you think about your wealth and how you live your life and how you're amassing things and property and money. But what does it mean? What for? For the poor. How am I using my wealth for the poor. But secondly, I think it's also going to affect the way we as a church do mission. And, you know, our three mission priorities is um, insightful teaching, intentional discipleship, holistic outreach. I think this third piece is coming. Let me get into today's talk. That was kind of a long introduction. Pardon, forgive me. I'll try to keep this concise. But today's talk, what I'd like to do is talk about the the fundamental thing that drives economics today. Does anybody want to guess what that is? What drives, what drives markets? Is it the government? The government creates markets. What drives markets? 
What drives? It's demand. Quite and simple demand. Quite and simple, it's demand. But the thing is, when we talk about demand, um, our, our, our modern culture today is really struggling with the idea, how do we, how do we find an ethical, ethical balance when it comes to demand? Because the thing is, demand and economics and markets themselves, these are ethically neutral things. We can't talk about the ethics of demand without introducing the idea of desire. Desire. And I think underpinning all of our conversation about demand, markets, and what people want, what do people really want, is this idea that we have this thing called desire. And I think this is where we can start. Now let me give you a framing story that'll kind of set the stage for today's talk about desire, about demand. There's a story that goes back 1,700 years ago, uh, about AD 300, and there was a young man. His name was Augustine. And with a gang of boys, Augustine was carousing and hanging out too late, and they went out, and they're just doing what young guys do, causing trouble. And they're looking, and they see their, his neighbor has this huge pear tree. And this tree is full of pears. And they're looking at the pears. They want the pears. And they climb the fence. And, and he says, this is actually St. Augustine. St. Augustine writing in his confessions, looking back. And he says, and he says we stole an enormous quantity of pears what he says. They steal this enormous quantity and then they run off like they're holding the pears and they didn't even eat them. They threw it all to the pigs. And Augustine looks back on this and he says, why, why did we do that? What is it about desire that is, that is corrupted? What is it about sin that in the end we steal the things and then we don't even want it anymore? And he, he, he says, I never liked pears anyway. Never liked pears and yet we got to have it. And there's something about that. There's something about that, that that is, I think, a good founding story, anecdote, for this whole issue of demand. You see, a couple of things that I see in that story. There's a social nature to desire. There's a social nature. You can't see this right now, but I'm wearing glasses. They are the new Apple OS glasses, OS X glasses. They're invisible. They are. I can actually see all of you in your skivvies right now. They're, they have x-ray vision. I have my Twitter feed right over here. If I blink twice, it gives, pulls up Instagram. If I blink three times, it pulls up Facebook. And with these glasses, you want them, don't you? You're like, not really. But tomorrow you will. Because the next thing you know, everybody's going to have the Apple OS X glasses, and you're going to want a pair, even though you think, Pastor, that's dumb. But it's kind of cool. And then the next thing you know, you got to have it. You just got to have it. <laughs> you got to have it because you got to have it because you want it because there's a social nature to desire. <laughs> and Augustine's like, oh, just leave, it. leave them alone. We don't, we don't, we don't need, you know, we don't, need the, we don't need the pairs. Come on, let's do it. So there's a social nature to it. Not only that, there's this thing where you stare at the pears and you're like, do I really need that? But that does look good. And the pears are, are marketed in such a way they're shined. Each one, they're polished, saying, eat me. And the way that this works, marketing, 
Marketing creates appetite of desires in us. I don't like Domino's. I don't like Pizza Hut. But for some reason, every football game, I'm ordering it. Because marketing is effective. It creates desire where you really don't have to, I don't like Pizza Hut. It creates desire. And another thing is, in the end, you end up taking that which you're like, I never like pears anyway, you throw it away. And so what happens is, in the end, our modern economics creates a desire, it creates demand for things that we don't really want in the end, or we don't really need. And in, this, in a sense, it creates a desire for nothing. It creates a desire for nothing. So we can kind of rail and talk about what's broken with our government, what's broken with, 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 what's broken with the big companies, what's broken with our economical system. But at the end of the day, as Christians, we really have no foundation to be able to talk about that without addressing the theological, the biblical ideas of desire. You hear what I'm saying? We can talk about what the, the country needs to do better. But really, the, question, the real issue is the country needs God. The real issue is we need God back. And we need God to come and fix this thing called demand. Because at the end of the day, we are all consumers. Demand. How does God fix desire? Three ways. Three ways that God fixes desire, and I'll give you the answers straight away. In your notes, you can write this down. The first way that God fixes our desire is we first admit our helplessness. This is, you could come back at me, I invite you to do this, but this is what I found in my own personal experience, and I think through the history of Christian thought, we've all, it's, there seems to be an agreement. When we recognize that we can't do this ourselves, when I'm helpless, that's the first step. The second thing, the second step in fixing desire is we undergo this drastic heart change. We undergo a heart change. And then third and last, we crave new desires. We replace old desires with new desires. That's how this works. So let me start with this first thing about the admission of our helplessness. You might say, Pastor, I'm not comfortable with this idea. I don't like why do I have to kind of admit my helplessness? Well, let's look at some scripture today, shall we? Ephesians chapter 2. I understand yesterday you were talking about Ephesians chapter 4, and you are talking about the old man, the old woman. Excellent, excellent. Today we're going to talk about the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, because in Paul's thought, I think that's a thing for him. This idea of the old man, or the old human, and the new human. Old human and new human. I believe that when we go, when we become Christians, we go through this, we go through this evolutionary change. And we go from Homo sapiens to Homo Christianus or something. I mean, I really believe that there's a change that happens in us. Ontologically, even, if you want to follow that philosophical thing. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the old man, Homo sapiens. What were we like before? He says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 1 to 4, this is who, what we were like before. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging whatever desires of the flesh and of the mind that were there. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is who we were before Homo sapiens. Previously, this is what we were um, years ago, uh, when my wife and I were still faithfully, faithfully, uh, with good faithfulness, watching The Walking Dead, um, my little daughter um, peered around the corner and said, go to bed, don't watch this. She says, Mom, Dad, are you watching Walk and Dead? And I said, yes, we are watching Walk and Dead. Don't watch, it's scary. And I think in that metaphor, Walk and dead is exactly what Paul is describing when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. I think what Paul is saying is you really were walking around. You were human, but really the only thing that was on your mind were brains. And that's all we, we follow. We have appetite of desires. iPhone, iOS, OS X, new car, pizza, Homer Simpson, like, just we, we, we follow. And therefore, like the walk and dead, we can't help ourselves because we are enslaved to whatever commercial is going to appear during the Super Bowl. Am I right? I don't, I, I'm sorry, but I, I'm, <laughs> confessions of Pastor Wayne. Yes, I, I can't help it. All volition and all of my will goes out the window in halftime, and the commercials come on, and I see the buffalo wings. I say, honey, can we order buffalo wings? Why? You don't even like that stuff. I, I just need to have it. No, pastor, I have a free will. I assert my free will. But right now, I want donuts. <laughs> free will can, I'll, I'll exercise my free will later. I want potato chips. So the thing is, I think the message that is being conveyed, that Paul is conveying, rightly so, is that we're, we're free will, we, free will, free, we're really enslaved. We're enslaved to our desires. I, I can speak only for myself. And we are enslaved to the markets as well. We are enslaved to the way, I remember 15 years ago, I said, you are never going to get me in a pair of pants that tight. Never. I was like, that's dumb. That looks uncomfortable. Why would I do that? My goodness, I'm trying to put these pants on today. I'm a slave of fashion. I'm sorry. So we're enslaved. And the sooner we admit our helplessness, the better. <laughs> you know, uh, there, was a, there was a guy 500, 600, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, and he talked about this. He wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, which is a beautiful title for a book. It'll probably sell today really well, but for different reasons. The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. And what he's talking about here is this sense that we have a will. And we want to exercise the will. And we say, we assert our freedom. And we say, I can do and choose whatever I want. But the truth of the matter is, 
our will, even at the fundamental, when you get under the hood and you say, let's see what's broken, the will, the volition, it, 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 it's, it's tainted. It's, 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 it's bent towards our appetite of desires. Whatever that first thing that I want right now, I eat it, brains. I pursue it. I want it. You know why capitalism works today and socialism doesn't? And I, I, I don't think that's a sweeping statement. I think we have, we, we can see around the world. Why does capitalism, and free, even in China, really, socialist government, but their economics is capitalistic. Why does it work? It works because it understands this very concept. People want what they want, and they're going to get it one way or another. So we should stop being capitalists. We should all be socialists. No. The answer is we have to look within and say, how am I free from my own desires? How do I address desires from within? This is not an economic project. It's not a project for the government. It's, an, it's a theological project. It's an internal project. It's a Holy Spirit project. The church has to lead the way for the reformation of society. That's why I'm talking about economics. pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. I, I don't. But I'm veering my car into your lane because I believe the gospel has to have something to say about this. I do believe that the only way, the only way that we can find any healthy consumptive patterns or any health is the recognition that we are somehow enslaved to our desires. And that's that first, first foundation. Admit our helplessness. If we can do that, and I, I, I hope I don't have to convince you, I am convinced, I know, I know this. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we, how do we fix society? How do we fix ourselves for crying out loud? The second, second way, the second step in fixing this thing called broken desire or demand is we have to undergo a drastic heart change. We need open hearts, God to do open heart surgery on us. And this, I think, the most prominent passage that I think of is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God is doing open heart surgery on his people Israel. And he says, listen, I'm going to give you a new heart you're going to get a heart transplant. Cardiologists here, this is your, I'm, I'm veering into your lane. You're going to get a new heart and a new spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone, the dead heart, and I'll take it out from your flesh, and I'll give you not a robot heart, not a bionic heart. I'm going to make you human again. Isn't that incredible? God's not saying, I'm going to give you the $6 million heart. I'm going to give you, I'm just going to make you human again. Because the thing is, anybody who really has followed capitalism to its uttermost extent, capitalistic desires, knows that they've somehow sold their hearts, that they've somehow become subhuman, and in the process, they, they, they just, they, they, they can't see themselves in the mirror anymore. Vampires. I don't feel human anymore. God says, I'm going to turn you back to a human. What an incredible word. I'll make you human again. I'll give you a heart of flesh. 
And in verse 27, well, how are you going to do this? This is how I'll do it. God says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. So this, this actually comes through the Holy Spirit. Friends, we've been praying here at Woven for Revival. We prayed for three things. We prayed for a new vision. We got that. I talk about it as often as I can. Almost every Sunday I'm talking about something, some aspect of our vision. We exist to be a diverse church community for the greater Houston metro area that is desegregating Sunday and sanctifying Monday to Friday through insightful teaching, intentional discipleship, and holistic outreach. New vision. We have a new location. We prayed for a new location. I am feeling really, really comfortable in these digs. I love it here. I love being with the Kingdom City team. It's a little bit of work. (laughs) But I want you to feel like this is my home and to stretch out and to put your feet up on the coffee table. And I want you to get to know your family members. Okay, but the third thing we've been praying for is revival. So God, bring revival. I think it's starting to happen. Aluino's up there. I want you all to know, everybody turn around and see Aluino. Aluino is from Angola. And there are a group of young people from Angola in the Kingdom City community. And we're borrowing them to say, give us some of the revival because they are going through revival. Are you not, Aluino? I see it. I hear it. We're talking about you guys. I want you to know that we're talking about you. Not in a bad way. We're saying, how can what's happening with our young Angolan brothers and sisters, college students, post-college students, who have the fire, and how can that infect us in Woven and in Ashford and in LBN? How can we benefit from that? Because revival is happening. Brother, bring it. Bring it. Pound away on those drums. Pound the spirit. Like, you know, it's like these war movies. Like, dong, 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 dong. And my, my testosterone, like I was watching Troy the other day, Right? You know, grab it. It's yours, right? You want it? You want, we want revival. I'm going to put my spirit in you. Revival is going to come. And the next thing you know, you're going to want different things. What is the evidence of revival? Is it me teaching you how to pray in tongues? I'll teach you how to pray in tongues. Say, I bought a Honda, I should have bought a Yamaha. Bought a Honda, should have bought a Yamaha, should have bought a Yamaha, bought a Honda, should have bought a Good Lord. No, 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 no. Revival is when our desires are changing. Revival is when you see the pizza commercial and you actually don't want pizza. It makes you sick. And you say, I really want celery sticks. Who in their right mind does that? But that's revival. No, it's an analogy. But you see where I'm going with this? Revival changes our desires. So God says, I'm going to bring revival. I'm going to put my spirit in you. The next thing you know, you're going to want to walk in my statutes. You're going to, be, you're going to want to observe these things. A change of desires. That's how it works. And so we have to go through this drastic heart change where God almost causes us to want the thing that we want. He causes us. This is a hard phrase. This is hard. Because that word cause in the Hebrew, asa, means make you. God is going to make me want to do his will? That sounds very controlling. You know, we have to hear that statement with the balance of the rest of the Bible. My personal opinion is nobody can make you do anything. That's my personal opinion. 
not even God. Really? Pastor, that doesn't sound right. Jesus talks about the Pharisees in the Gospels. We're, we're talking about this in Mark. I've done everything that I can to convince you, but if your heart is set against God, he's not going to force you to do anything that you don't want to do. He respects you. He respects your will. And at the end of the day, if you don't want God and you want to walk away, and God is going to cry over it, but he's going to say, so be it. I can't make you do what you want to, don't want to do. But I think this passage is not talking about making us do what we don't want to do. I think this passage, passage is talking about making us or helping us or causing us to do the very thing we want to do. Do you know what I mean? I think what this is not, this is not talking about God saying, I'm going to turn you into robots. No, that's offensive. That's offensive to Judeo-Christianity. God's not saying, I'm going to turn you into robots and you're going to obey me, obey me. No, God's saying, I see you struggling to keep my will. I see you struggling to say, no pizza today. And I'm going to bring my spirit and transform your desire so that you want the good stuff. You want the good things at the end. I'll do it through my spirit. How many of you have struggled in your Christian faith? You don't have to raise your hand. God, I want to do the good that I want to do, but I don't do that. I do the very thing I don't want to do. And I don't want to do the stuff that I don't want to do, but instead I want to do the thing I want to do, but in the, in the end I don't do any. Woe unto me who says that. Paul says that. You're in good company. Paul the apostle says the very same thing. What is the solution? It's revival. It's the Holy Spirit. Friends, if I can just bring this home, I remember at one of the darkest periods of my life, and I was mired in my sinful behavior. Nothing, I knew that I needed to change. I knew I needed to do things differently, but I couldn't. And the revival that I experienced, and I remember this so clearly, 1996-97, it was December of 96, I went to a conference at the Montrose Retreat Center in Pennsylvania. There were over a thousand college students there, and I went in in a sinful state. I went in in a habitual, in a struggling state. I didn't, I didn't know how to over, and I walked away from that conference with such a revival that lasted with me to this day, to this day, and I still struggle with desire. It's not a once and for all. But the thing is, it is possible. You find that when you're singing, I found that singing and, and hearing teaching that was strong and sound and good and reading scripture, I, I walked away. You know what I walked away? What new desire I walked away? And this gets to the third and last thing. You know what new desire I walked away from that retreat all those years back? 1996, December Montrose, Pennsylvania. I walked away with a desire to read books. I don't care. I didn't care about reading books. And I'm not talking about academics here, friends. I wanted to know what the pursuit of holiness meant. And that was the first book I bought when I came back from retreat, was Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. And I wanted to understand. I was hungry for spiritual things. That's what I'm talking about. Up until then, all I wanted to do was give me a guitar and get me in front and let the girls see me play at church. 
But for the first time in my life, I was hungry. What does it actually mean to be godly? What does it mean when a young man pours his life, amen, Aluino, and says, I want to serve God. I want to follow God with all of my heart. I want this to transform. What does holiness from within pouring out look like? And the second book I bought was Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll because I wanted to be awakened by grace. And then the third book I bought, The Pursuit of Holiness, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer because I wanted to know. And I'm buying all these holiness books because I'm hungry, not because somebody said, here's your syllabus. I want you to read these three books by... Nobody was telling me I wanted to know, God, how do you make a young man who's dirty holy? That's revival. We start to crave new things. If I gave you this dry three-point sermon, you might walk away and say, intellectually convinced, I don't want that. I want you to walk away feeling the heat of the blazing center of the Holy Spirit. That something in you walks away saying, revive me, Lord, I, 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 I'm convicted. I, I, I need to pray, and I need to seek you, and I need to find a way that you can transform and change me from the inside out. Crave new desires is the third and last piece. This is how it works. Sang and Chen, one day, Beautiful Elias is going to want to put something in his mouth that is not, not healthy or safe. You, you keep all that stuff away. But once he grabs that thing, once the baby grabs it in their hand, and they're, ah, you, you, what do you do? You, you take it away, and he cries. Baby cries. Am I right? What do you do? You swap it, right? Take, take away the... <laughs> God forbid, you know, the, the, you know take, away, the, take away that and swap it with some. That, that's how God's economics works. Crave new desires. No pizza tonight. Celery sticks. Pastor, I really don't want celery sticks. Well, we're going to have a special revival meeting and an altar call at the end, and you're going to walk away on fire, and you're going to say Celery. We crave new desires, and that's what 1 Peter says in chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Go out after this and go order some holiness books on Amazon. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it, we may grow up in our salvation now that you've, I love this, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Nobody wants something that they haven't prior tasted. You cannot crave something that you've never had opportunity to taste. The Holy Spirit comes, you taste it, you say that's good. And we crave it. We crave new desires. Let me tie this off and finish up now, transition to communion. See, how do we connect this back to modern-day economics? What's the answer then? You know what the answer is? We could do what the Californians do. We could farm all of our own food and only use mechanical transportation don't, don't contribute to 
CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. Only consume things that are locally grown and raised. And make sure you're paying the farmer equally. Fair trade. We can boycott everything and live on a commune. That's one answer. It's one answer. I don't think it's the only way, though. I don't think it's going to work here in Houston. What is the answer? Well, before we ask, what is, the, what is the problem? You know what the problem with our markets today, with modern day capitalism, is one thing. Anybody know? Consumption. If I can get wealthy, if Pastor Wayne said get wealthy, but think about the poor as an afterthought. No, 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 the poor are not an afterthought. That's why that's the first. Think about the poor first. If I can get wealthy, that means then I can get, I can consume as much as I want. Something's wrong with that. The problem is consumption. The answer I don't think is socialism. I don't think the answer is even with the government. I think the answer is desire. What do I do with my desires? I'm going to close with one last, you know, honest confession and disclosure. The 21 days of prayer and fasting are over, and I was so busy during those days, those 21 days, I didn't get to do much fasting or, or prayer. That's not a good thing. But I knew in my head, when I have the time, I'm going to start. And I'm considering, I'm considering fasting um, now, even though the 21 days is over. Um, I was visiting with a friend, and he told me, you're not fasting unless you've broken the three-day barrier. And he said, it's kind of like, you know, breaking the stratosphere. Because after three days, then you're really, really depending on God. I mean, he's not saying, you know, you have to fast for 40 days. But he's saying the first two days are hard, but then when you get to the third day, you start really saying, God, I need help. I need, I need to depend on you. I'm not prescribing that over anybody. But what I am saying is when it comes to desire, sometimes maybe fasting, maybe sometimes just peeling back from the TV a little bit, maybe sometimes celery sticks, Whatever practical application that you have, think about it for yourself. I'm not telling you what to do. Desire is the problem. There's another solution here. How does the Lord's table connect with desire? This, I think, is terribly interesting. See, this is what happens when you go back to seminary. You learn a few things. This, to me, is just crazy. I love it. If the problem of modern economics is consumption, eating too much, buying too much, acquiring too much, what we have here is the answer to consumption. Because when Christ took the bread and he broke it, and he gave it away. He was sacrificing, not taking. 
He was not acquiring. He was giving, giving, giving. Those words are always used whenever bread is being handled. He blessed, he broke, he took, and he kept. No, he gave. Fundamental to this act of eating is this thing about giving myself. I give myself away. Every time you eat the communion supper, what you're doing is you're consuming sacrifice. You're eating, giving. (laughs) Take communion often. I mean, I propose this idea even to Andrew in our community groups. Paul, if you're leading community groups, I wouldn't be, I would have no problem if you decided, let's do communion. (laughs) Andrew, if you wanted to do it, I know you say that's that's too much. I'm just putting this out there. The point that I'm trying to make is take this often. Because as we take this, we are identifying with God who gives himself away. doesn't hoard, but he gives to the poor. Every time we take this, let us be reminded that the poor come first. Let us be reminded that the poor come first. Worship team, come on up. You can be the poor. Take first. Let us be reminded that the poor... No, I mean, come and take communion first before you. Let us be reminded that the poor come first. (laughs) 